Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This talk is from the Anuradha Sutta, um, which is a sutta on how, uh, let me start this way, it, we learned in Dependent Origination um, about 20 classes ago in this structured study, that it is from ignorance of Four Noble Truths as a requisite condition required uh, that fabrications are formed in individual human minds. And once that fabric, that mind has become fabricated, it's that, that mind established in fabrication that's now feeding its own consciousness. It's, and it's ongoing thinking. Consciousness in this sense is not some grand cosmic consciousness that we're all aspiring to. That's not occurring and it can occur. What, what we're talking about when we use the word consciousness within the Buddha's Dhamma is ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And so this sutta, the Buddha teaches us how these fabrications become lodged in every thought, word, and idea that, we occur, that occurs within the individual. Again, I'm saying that a few times, the individual, because this is not a collective. We don't live in a collective, within a collective mind. That's the biggest fabrication that's ever been, and that goes back probably millions of years. Historically, you can trace it back thousands of years. That there's some kind of unifying agent to human life. And, and again, I won't get into the origins of that, uh, the obvious origins of that, just that it occurs and we're all a part of it, and that it's a hurtful thought because it's, it's a thought that's rooted in a misguided notion of salvation. Again, I won't get too deep into this because I think this sutta will explain that. But if you wonder why we, as human beings, always fall into the trap of needing a, sa- a savior in one way or another, either it's a magical savior or a, a political or a leadership type of savior, someone to save us from our own miserable, awful, rotten existence. I can't extricate myself. I have no power. That is the essence of self-loathing that we talk about. And I'm not talking about people that get caught in the cracks because I get signs of it. What do we do about the people that are hurting our society? The most significant thing we can do, the most skillful thing, if we really care about other human beings, really, if we're honest with ourselves, and we should be, especially today, if we really care about other human beings, we'll take care of ourselves first, we'll take to the Dhamma and awaken, and then we can truly be of useful and skillful service to other human beings once we work through our fabrications. The Buddha did not reach out to any other human being until he awakened. That's not, that does not mean that he didn't hope, open a, uh, hold a, uh, a woman's hand. I said, I was going to say, I'll open a door. There weren't doors, I guess. That doesn't mean that he didn't hold, I was going to say, hold a woman's hand as she got into a chariot. First thing I could think about. It doesn't mean that he wasn't kind to other people. It just means he didn't take on the role of trying to help anyone in a direct way of changing anybody's thinking until he knew how to change his own thinking. Imagine how much better our world would be if we all decided that. That I'm not going to try to impose my thinking on anybody else's until I know my own thinking. All violence in the world would end. All poverty, all our problems in the world would end if people would just realize that one thing. It's my thinking that's the problem. The reason why I'm seeing all these problems in the world is not because of the problems in the world. They're there. But the problems in the world are there because of my thinking. And if I can find a way to change my thinking, and especially if I can find my way of changing my thinking in a very gentle and direct and skillful and doable way, I'm going to do it. And that's what happened when I came across the, the Buddhist Dhamma. I was thinking about this last night. What's the difference between my life now and, say, 20 years ago? Is that I'm no longer enamored with, my, with the world, which means I'm no longer enamored with every thought, word, and idea that occurs, and my life has never been more meaningful. I don't mean to make a big point, but I do reference it occasionally, is my physical condition. I'm nearly blind. And again, I'm not saying that for effect. I'm saying it to make the point. And even as my physical abilities decline, almost by the moment, I notice a more meaningful aspect. And actually, I would say now as I'm saying this, by the moment, I notice a more meaningful aspect of each and every moment. And the difference is because of this sutta. Because I'm not fabricating each and every thought that occurs to me anymore. And the remarkable thing to me, because of the Dhamma, I'm able to recognize it. And now you know why I say to you always, look at it. Recognize that you're changing. Recognize that the Dhamma is working for you. Recognize that you're progressing through the four levels of jhana. And you're recognizing when you're caught up in the world. 
recognize when you rely on yourself to take a breath and step out of the fabrication and get back into your body. Uh, I'm going to let go of the intro. I was going to read part of the introduction. I'm going to let it go because I think my introduction just now was brilliant. It can't be any better. So. The Anurata Sutta, Authentic Dhamma and the Five. The Five Clinging Aggregates are the, the Buddha's description of ongoing suffering rooting the personal experience of ongoing suffering rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. I have heard that on one occasion the Buddha was staying near Vasali. Venerable Anurata has visited the Buddha from his forest hut. While traveling to the Buddha, a group of wandering sectarians encountered Anurata. The group had, had common questions for, for Anurata. The Tathagata, the awakened one, the Buddha, has been described as having one of these views. The Tathagata exists after death. The Tathagata does not exist after death. The Tathagata both exists and does not exist near death after death. That's something that Nagarjuna made a, made a, a whole meal, a whole uh, career on. The Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. And that was part of Nagarjuna's teaching too. It does not exist after death. Notice these questions. These are all the great questions that human beings have been asking since they became self-reflective, looking out on the stars. Where do I come from? Where am I going? Who put me here? How do I get there? How do I make this better? All of those are speculative thoughts, aren't they? Because they're all about what, what, is, what am I out in relation to what's out there? Rather than understanding what I am first and letting that understanding describe what you're looking at. That's informing, as the Buddha refers to the, the, the sixth sense base as having its own consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness. That's how we feed that consciousness correctly. So it perceives correctly in a dispassionate way. Venerable Ananda replied that the Tathagata, the awakened one, is not described by having any of these views. The wandering sectarian said to Anurata, you are either an inexperienced newcomer or a foolish elder. He was neither. The sectarians took their leave of Anurata. Not long after, Anurata thought, if I, are, if I am questioned again <clears throat> by seekers, how will I answer in such a way that I will not misrepresent the Buddhist te- Dhamma so that those with, with, uh, with whose thinking is in line with the Dhamma will have grounds for criticizing me. So already Anurata understands the importance of if people are going to ask him about the Dhamma, he better know what he's talking about. And so now he's, he's going to go ask the Buddha, how do I teach this thing? Much like we talk about. You know, we, I've heard almost every one of you, and maybe every one of you say, you know, when I'm talking to my friends, I'm not quite sure how to say it. This is, this is kind of pointing you to that, and it's also saying... That before you do that, you might want to develop a little bit of the Dhamma yourself. Of course, you can always say, I just started practicing. It seems wonderful. Why don't you come and join me? Anurata went to the Buddha. He bowed and sat to one side. Great teacher. A group of wandering sectarians asked me if you had any views that agree with these views. The Tathagata exists after death. The Tathagata does not exist after death. The Tathagata both exists and does not exist after death. The Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist after death. And I just want to point out... If you look at these, why are these things so confusing? You can see the grasping nature that the human mind seeks to establish, that seeks to establish itself in every thought, word, and idea that occurs. In other words, the thought that when I'm dead, there's got to be some kind of life left. So let me put myself in that life. And let me create scenarios such as the Tulsita Buddhist heaven, or the Christian heaven, or the Muslim heaven, or any religious or salvific heaven after life establishment. That's what the Buddha is talking about here from 2,600 years ago. That he realized that the foolishness of this and he stopped doing it. If he stopped doing it, it's, it's pretty good advice that we should stop doing it. Stop seeking to establish ourselves in any speculative way. Any non-physical way. The Tathagata exists, neither exists nor does not exist after death. We do that all the time, don't we? We don't know that we're going to heaven, but we all, most of us believe that we're going to something after death. Even if it's just joining that great collective of consciousness. Of course we don't know. I'm not going to say we're not doing that, but we don't know that we are. And to, to, take, to take my consciousness in this moment and hang the rest of my life on a speculation of where I might go after this life is the essence of diminishing and negating this life, isn't it? But yet we all do it. And we've been doing it since the beginning of time. We're not concerned about where we are. We're concerned about where we're going. Why? Because we're self-referential. Referential. I always need to establish myself in every thought, word and, that occurs to me, every thought, word, and idea that occurs to me, especially an idea that's about the future. 
And that thought that's about the future, because a mind is, that's conditioned by ignorance, is always informed by past experiences, never by what's occurring meaningfully now. I said to them, friends, the target of the awakened one <clears throat> is not described as having any of these views. They assumed I was an inexperienced newcomer or a foolish elder. I misrepresented your dhamma. <clears throat> How should I respond in the future to, to present your authentic dhamma so that I won't be criticized by the wise? The Buddha responded, What do you think, Anurata? Is form permanent or impermanent? Well, form is impermanent. He's talking about the five clinging aggregates. And is that which is impermanent easeful or stressful? Anurata knows much of the Dhamma, and of course he knows that that which is impermanent is always stressful, Master. And is it authentic to my Dhamma to join with what is stressful, to self-identify with what is stressful, by regarding what is impermanent, stressful, subject to change, as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am? What is the Buddha referring to here? He's not referring to physical things. He's referring to the ideas that, that Anurata just presented to him, that the sectarians presented to him. It's the ideas that he's saying are the, are the, the basic and permanent nature of all things. It, Anurata agrees. No, it is not, Master. Is feeling permanent or impermanent? Feeling is impermanent, Master. Is perception permanent or impermanent? Perception is impermanent, Master. Are fabrications permanent or impermanent? Fabrications are impermanent, Master. Well, is consciousness... <coughs> excuse me. Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Consciousness is impermanent <coughs> too, Master. And again, that's the five clinging aggregates. That which we use to describe a personal experience of suffering. Whether we call it that or not. The Buddha does. And as Dharma practitioners, we learn to. And so again, he's describing the personal experience of suffering as rooted in ignorance. It's impermanent. And it's that which is impermanent, easeful or stressful. It's always stressful. So what the Buddha is saying is every thought that we have is contributing to our stress. Excuse me. Why? Because it's a fabricated thought. Now it might be a fabricated thought that brings us peace and calm in this moment. Like next week at this time I'm going to be on... Kahena Beach, and that's Black Sand Beach on Kahena Road in Hawaii. I'm going to be in Kahena Beach. Well, that brings calm, doesn't it? But as soon as I realize I'm not on Kahena Beach, where am I? I'm in this miserable place in Frenchtown, New Jersey. Or at least it's diminished my experience. I might not think that I'm, I'm miserable now, but I'm not in Hawaii. My life is going to be so much better in a week when I'm on Kahena Beach. And I used to do that to me all the time, especially when I travel to Hawaii. Which made that next week a little bit tense, didn't it? And, it, and that which is impermanent is always stressful. Yes, it is, Master. And is it authentic to my Dhamma to join with that which is stressful, to self-identify with what is stressful, by regarding what is impermanent, stressful, and subject to change, as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am. I made the trip to Hawaii personal. I owned it. This was me. It wasn't me. I wasn't me teaching a class in Frenchtown anymore. Me was on a beach in Frenchtown. And by the way, I can teach a class pretty well while I'm thinking about being on a beach in Frenchtown. And what happened? You may think that, boy, he's a great, really great teacher. And I can tell you that that happens in a lot of classes, teachers that aren't present that are recognized as being brilliant. I'm not going to go through their names, but there's, there's a lot of history about people teaching classes blasted on alcohol and drugs. We don't need to, I don't need to name them. We know who they are. That's mindlessness, isn't it? I know it from personal experience. That's the same kind of mindlessness that would have me being stuck in a vision of a future where I'm trying to be present with you and teach a Dhamma class. It doesn't work. And that's what Anurata is asking the Buddha. How do I stay present with people so I don't misrepresent your Dhamma? Let's go skipping over some commentary. No, it is not, Master. Anurata, do you regard form as the Tathagata? Meaning, do you regard the, what he's looking at? The, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, sitting in front of him. No, I do not, Master. So Anurata understands the Dhamma enough to realize that that form is not the Buddha, is not the permanent Buddha. The, this, this nest refers to the five clinging aggregates. Well, do you regard feeling as the Tathagata? How are you feeling? Oh, I'm having a bad day. We identify with that. We, we support other people in, feel, in continuing that fabrication, don't we? Do you regard feeling as the Tathagata? No, I do not, Master. Do you regard perception as the Tathagata? No, I do not, Master. 
So when we start listening to people, especially nowadays politicians and those in government, based on what is obviously their opinions, we should probably stop listening to them. Or at least look a little further when things are opinion. Because opinions are perceptions and they're rooted in ignorance. It doesn't mean that that particular leader might mistakenly or inadvertently be right. It just means we should recognize opinion and perceptions for what it is. Not as truth, not as reality. We just came through 15 months now of perceptions being portrayed as truth. And I'm not saying everything. I don't want to get into that. But that's what's occurring in the world. And it seems like it's occurring at a more rapid rate. But again, this is nothing new. This is what, what's occurring in the world right now is nothing new than what has been occurring for 2,600 years ago. It may seem more exaggerated and it may be, it may be immediately more exaggerated but that's just impermanence. That's the fluctuation of time. It has to do with... Um, uh, it has to do with the manifestations of fabrications being held. And as impermanence churns this up, and this is not a reflection of, the, of, the, of a connection in the human collection. What it is is a commentary on, on 9 billion people intellectually fabricating in the same direction and being caught up ever deeper in a fabrication. And that's what's manifesting in the world. But like all fabrications, even that extreme fabrication is impermanent and will diminish. What, what causes the diminishing, the event or the events that cause that, is pure speculation. None of us know it. I hope it's Dhamma practice. But I don't know what it's going to be. And Anurata doesn't know either. No, I do not, Master. Do you regard consciousness as a Tathagata? No, I do not, Master. Well, Anurata, well, Anurata, do you view the Tathagata as being in form? Do you view the Tathagata as being other than form? Do you view the Tathagata as being in feeling? Do you view the Tathagata as being other than a feeling? Do you view the Tathagata as being in perception? Do you view the Tathagata as being other than perception? Do you view the Tathagata as being in fabrications? Do you view the Tathagata as being other than fabrications? He's asking Anurata now, do you view the Tathagata as either the five clinging aggregates or something speculative other than the five clinging aggregates? Do you view the Tathagata as being in consciousness? Do you view the Tathagata as being other than consciousness? No, I do not, Master. Well, Anurata, do you view the Tathagata as five clinging aggregates, as form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness? No, I do not. So again, he's teaching Anurata how he should be seeing other people even though they're caught up in, deeply in delusion. You do not see them as five clinging aggregates even though they are presenting themselves as deeply deluded and caught in five clinging aggregates. How do we do that? We do it through awakening. The most loving and kind thing we can do for all other sentient beings is to awaken so I stop seeing you as flawed. So even when you act in a way that is not skillful, I won't judge you harshly. And how do I get past that need to approve while in order for me to accept, I have to awaken. Because until I took to the Dhamma, in order for me to accept something, I had to approve of it. It had to be me. And if I didn't approve of it, I didn't want it in my world. And if you wanted it in your world, we got a problem. And that's how I lived my life for many years. That's how most people live their lives. It has to be my way, what's this say? It's my way or the highway. We create phrases that we live by. My way or the highway. What an awful way to live your life, isn't it? How about no way and I get to live my life? Free of any fabrication. That's what, that's what being free of fabrication is. It's no put, not putting any way on what, what should be happening right now. No condition on what I want to experience. And when I can free my mind of those types of fabrications, of conditioning this moment, and you've heard me say this many times, I love saying it, I don't mind not saying it because I mind saying it, each and every moment is meaningful. Why? Because I'm present for it. I'm not stuck in a fabrication of what this moment should be or what the next moment should be or where I might be if I'm a good and moral person or if I kiss somebody's butt which some people think that's a way to improve yourself. No. Nothing can improve my lot in life except the way that I think about myself. And that thinking has to be based in reality. It has to be based in four noble truths. First, in order for life to be real, it has to be founded in four noble truths. And then those four noble truths can inform the reality that unfolds in our lives. Do you view the Tathagata as without form, without feeling, without perception, without fabrications, without consciousness? Yes, that's because he is. No, I'm going to say, he doesn't see him that way. No, I do not, Master. 
So anurata, when you cannot describe or establish the Tathagata as a, as, as a permanent truth in this present life, is, a, is it authentic for you to, dis, to declare that the Tathagata, the awakened one, has any of these qualities you describe? You're ascri- ascribing these qualities to other people because we, because we first ascribed them to ourselves, and so we have to project them onto other people. They must have them, or my fabricated view isn't real. It's there. Another person's understanding of the Four Noble Truths can be very challenging to my understanding of my fabrication of the truth. Can it not be? And that's why we have to be very circumspect, gentle, and cautious when we're approaching other people with the Dhamma. And even as we, as we teach it, I hope, I hope my teaching style comes off as at least somewhat gentle and not too forceful. I hope so. I'm doing the best I can. Uh, but that again, I learned how to teach from learning how the Buddha taught through these suttas. Again, Anurata describes, no, it is not, Master. Anurata, you have learned well. Remember what I teach at all times. This is one of the most important lines the Buddha ever taught, and it's the one line that is uh, always diminished or dismissed. Anurata, you have learned well. Remember what I teach at all times. It is only stress that I describe and the cessation of stress. It's the end of the sutta. That's the whole point of recognizing and abandoning fabrication. Because it changes the way that I think. And when I change the way that I think, I end my contribution to my stress. And when I'm in control of my mind through jhana meditation and integrating the Eightfold Path and no longer contributing to my stress, there is no longer any stress in my life. Because the world cannot contribute to my stress if I understand what's occurring in the world. Any more than an individual can contribute to my stress, even if they're screaming at me in my face, if I understand where that human being is coming from. And I've had that. I was a human being who reacted very poorly to to somebody that gave me a scant look. Why don't they like me? What's the matter with that person? Forget about if you said I did something wrong, because then you really got my wrath. How could you ever think I did anything wrong? Ever. And again, it's what an awful way to live, to always have to be right and always being protective of me. I hated it. And I hated myself for doing it. And we all do. Because it's an awful way to live our lives. That's what leads to this, this constant human condition, underlying condition of self-loathing. Because we're fabricating our life. It's unpleasant to do it, whether we recognize it or admit it or not. It doesn't work. But once we recognize it, and this is why I talk about this simplicity of the Dhamma. And again, I understand that our minds are complex because they're conditioned. But the Dhamma is simple and direct. And once we take to it, it allows us to very quickly recognize and abandon these fabrications. It's the entire point of the Dhamma. And these fabrications always manifest. Excuse me. Just to make this final point on something we talk about all the time, fabrications always manifest in the three marks of existence. Always. Okay. Um, let's go, we'll go online first and uh, see what you think about our sutta and how you're doing today. Brian, how are you? Good, sir. Thank you. Appreciate this. Um, Good to see you. This, this one reminded me of, of college almost, where I had professors telling me or chastising me a bit for getting the right answer, but not knowing how I got the right answer. Yeah. And, and having that, that, that doubt or that the ego is like, well, yeah, you got it right, but why did you get it right? At least the Buddha's a bit more gentle going through it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, but um, yeah, this one really hit home uh, on a lot of levels. So yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. You remind me. Here goes the story. You remind me of another story. When I was when I first got into second or third grade, I guess. When did oh, Jen's not here? When did they when did they teach kids how to start reading? Right when you first get to school, I guess. Third grade. Third grade. So I got I I was able with the help of my grandmother. I still remember some of the scenes. I was able somehow to teach myself to read. I remember reading Dr. Seuss before I got to school. And I got to school, and the teacher's going to teach us, start teaching us how to read, and I could already do it. And the only thing she could think of saying was, you learned wrong. You couldn't possibly know how to read. Okay. I started learning about fabrications at a very early age. <laughs> Mary, how are you? Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, this is a, another foundational teaching. Um, understanding the five free aggregates is... I think very central to what we're trying to do. It's what picks us up in life. And yeah. um, 
it's what um, you know holds us back, if you will. So if the opposite is true, if understanding the five clinging aggregates and um, you know in, is you know certainly is something we can all do that will you know pave the way for so many things in our lives uh, to be better. Um, so just a very important one to understand. I continue to be a student of it. So thank you, John. Thank you, Mary. Good morning, Brett. <clears throat> good morning. Good to be here. Uh, good, good to, to see, see everybody. You. Uh, thanks for your teaching, John. Uh, all I, I guess all I have to say is I'm just super busy right now and uh, with a lot of challenges and uh, I don't need anything, any more um, fabrications in my mind to take me out of the present because I think <laughs> I need all the strength I can get to get through what I'm trying to, you know, to get to the next level. And uh, so it was a good teaching to hear. And um, I, yeah, being present, you know, I guess dropping all this stuff just brings you into the present moment, which you can have more energy and, yeah. and, uh, and clarity. So good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brett. Good morning, Steve. Good to see you. Good morning. Thank you very much. Good to see you too. Uh, I have a question. Uh, I hope I have an answer. Uh, I hope to. Uh, you mentioned your uh, Dharma talk about uh, every uh, fabrication, every thought is uh, lead to uh, stress or to suffering. But Buddha very often mentioned uh, Wholesome thought is leading to uh, not suffering, and uh, unwholesome thought is leading to suffering. Yeah, it, it, thank you for the question. It's a, it's a great question. It, actually, David touched on this during his talk too. The um, the eightfold path and what we call awakening happens within a mind that is fabricated. And so that mind has to have a way within its, its experience of ignorance to go from ignorance towards awakening. And that's what we call wholesome thoughts. So the thought that, um, and even if we, there might be some feeling behind it, that at five o'clock today I'm going, to, I'm going to meditate. And there might be a little bit of, that's going to make me feel really good, self-reference there. It's still a wholesome thought because it's directing us towards something that will allow us to extricate ourselves from those thoughts. Does that make sense to you? Is that a, a helpful answer? Yes, it makes sense. And it, yeah, and it, that's kind of a key thing of the Dhamma because we're not, we're not trying to... We don't enter the Dhamma as some type of established being who's only improving the established being. We're first de-establishing the being that's fabricated. And that has to come first. And that's the worthwhile thought. That's the wholesome thought. I'm moving towards, I'm moving away from this belief in this fabricated self and towards the understanding of reality. But all of that occurs. And this is the brilliance of the Buddha's teaching too. He figured out a way to take a mind that is rooted in ignorance to recognize that ignorance, to recognize that delusion, to recognize that insanity and extricate itself through this method called an Eightfold Path. And to me, that's really, it's, it's brilliant. Yes, so. Yeah, there, one of the things that can occur um, very early on in Dhamma practice, but any, but really any time, is we can feel. Um, we can go through periods where we're feeling really isolated from the world, disconnected from people, even maybe even disconnected from ourselves. But, you know, the, the Course in Miracles, and not that I want to get into that, we call that the, the, the year of transition. It's a period of, of transition, where you, or maybe even establishing equilibrium in this new mind of equanimity. How's that for a couple of words? And there is a transition phase where we feel out of sorts because we, it's just unfamiliar territory. But we're moving from a very constricted, as the Buddha would say, a very constricted, closed mind to a mind that is completely free and liberated. And that does take some getting used to within Dharma practice. It takes some, 
Um, uh, if, if, you're a, if you ever climbed heights, you have to acclimate when you get to these heights. If you're climbing these internal heights, you have to acclimate to that. There's a, there's a period of, um, uh, or it can seem like periods of plateauing where nothing is happening in your Dhamma practice, you're not going anywhere, and that's when you're really integrating it, when it feels like nothing is going on. That's when the fabrications are, have been diminished and you're starting to become familiar with a new way of, of feeling and, and thinking, but it can be very uncomfortable. So take a breath, realize what, what is occurring here, that you're just moving through your fabrication. That's why Steve's question is so important, because that's what he's going through. You know, it relates directly to that. And just understand the process. I'm letting go of everything that no longer serves me, is really what we're doing here. So, thank you, Steve. Karen, do you, would you like to say hello? Just saying hi and thank you. And, sorry. Sorry about that. That's okay. I'm so glad you joined us today. We're gonna we're gonna see you soon. I'm not sure when though. <laughs> Good morning, David. Hello, John, is, is this the Buddha's cousin? Anurad is one of the Buddha's cousins, but I think this. At right. this Every, point, was he awakened? Uh, the, I I don't I don't think so because he wasn't sure about his. I mean, it, it, he had a well developed understanding of the Dhamma, mm -hmm. but that lack of inner poise, inner assuredness, probably not. Because he knew what... He knew what to ask. He knew what, what it wasn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because he took it personal of the rebuke of the sectarians, even though he probably yeah, could right. speak to what it was, it threw him off. Yep, you're he right. Had a, he had... I, I think even going to the Buddha, he knew what he was going to hear. Yep. And that's what he, that's what the Buddha told him too. And in essence, what you're saying, it was a moment of self-reference that caused a disturbance in his mind, right? right? Am I putting words in your mouth? No, no, no. Yeah. That's, it, that's how I yeah. read that that passage. That because he missed an opportunity to teach them the the Dhamma. Yeah, but but he also but it, yes, yeah, the, the word the but wasn't the right word because I'm not arguing with you. And it also, as you pointed out, and it showed him that. I still got some work to do, didn't it? Because he was, his mind had developed to such a, a subtle level that he was able to recognize that as disturbance and not simply maybe a foolish question or some other way that a mind that's deeply rooted in fabrication might, uh, might put on that person, whether you're just a fool or an idiot or whatever label we might say. He accepted responsibility of the, of the reaction in his mind that there's something lacking in him. It's brilliant to point that out too, David. Thank you. And he went to the, he went to the source, didn't he? He didn't, he didn't try to further speculate or, or even make a more confused and convoluted explanation in his own mind of what was occurring. He simply went to the source. And, you know, we, I, I said this a few times too, we no longer have the opportunity to go to the Buddha. But we do have, we, we have the three refuges, the three jewels of the Dhamma established, just as he established them. In the human Buddha, his Dhamma is still present here today, and we have a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. We have everything here today available to us that Anurata had then. I bet every one of you thought, no, that's not. The Buddha's not here. Well, the Buddha wasn't there then either, in physical form, was he? But his Dhamma was, and his Dhamma is still here today. And again, um, I know um, maybe you think I'm assuming a lot for myself, but I think I'm a pretty good teacher of the Dhamma because I put the time in. I'm saying that now so you know you can do what Anurata wants to do is teach the Dhamma when it's appropriate by simply developing the Dhamma. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. And that's why we have nearly as many teachers at Becoming Buddha Cross River Meditation Center as we have students. <laughs> no, really. It, it, it should be that way. It shouldn't be the other way. It shouldn't be that we have, we have a, a Sangha of 600 people and only three people were ever to develop the level of teacher. What does that say about the Dhamma or that Dharma? I mean, to me, it says it's either too difficult, too complicated, or too hierarchical. The way I think, and, I, and the way that our teachers think, and the way I hope all of you think, is that you all are potential teachers. And meaning, even potential teachers with the certificate, if that's what you want. And if you don't want it, that's okay too. But that's the point of the Dhamma. We should all, if we are taking true refuge, we all are striving to become like Buddha, becoming Buddha. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Yeah, and, and <clears throat> it's also uh, a sign of, of a, 
uh, well-established sangha that it is. Uh, there are multiple sources for for the Buddhist words. Oh, and, it's incredible. Yeah. And and the sangha wouldn't work if there was only one source for 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 the Dhamma. Not for too long. Uh, it just uh, and. And you, you see this, this... Well, wait a minute. The one source is always the Buddha, but... Yeah, the, the one, one source is always the Buddha, but, you know, the, it, it, it comes out in, in different ways, and it gets to be much more synergistic, where, where um, you know, things keep bouncing off of each other, and, yeah. and, and it, it builds that way. Um, yeah. I, this, is a, this is a nice super, uh, uh, as far as, you know how to be in, in, in the real world and, and be challenged because it, it, yeah. it happens um, and you know his, his first reaction was, was correct he says well this is nonsense you know, you know, he, he pretty much dismisses what, what, they're, what yeah. they're trying to throw at him uh, but he still gets caught up in, in their rebuke yep. um, and yeah and skillfully goes goes back to the source and, and says, uh, "Where did I go wrong here?" Yeah, it's really interesting that you that's that you both notice that. And mm-hmm. what Ram is referring to about not just having one one source, um, it's remarkable to me. And I, you, you, I think all of you, maybe Tom hasn't heard all the new teachers yet, um, but each and every one of them has a, has their own distinct voice, their own distinct style, um, and their own nuanced way of teaching Dhamma and it really is remarkable and it's it's so um, what's the word it's so subtle but there's a better word for it yeah I can't think of the, the right word about how, but it, it as Ron was saying it just presents a much broader view of the Dhamma that you could get even out of this one brilliant meditation teacher here it, and it David, everyone, I'm not saying this. I'm saying this because David just talked, but not to diminish that. But David's talk really just blew me away of how how nuanced it was. But every one of the teachers, uh, you've experienced that. So that's what. But what you'll find is it's rock solid to what you're teaching. Yeah, that's so what makes me realize. I, I mean, I again, mm-hmm. I, I I accept that I'm a pretty good teacher because I I see it come out in other ways. And, and how else would you know if you if you're Doing, I mean, I, from the beginning of teaching, I always ask people, are you getting this? Because I wanted to know. Mm-hmm. That, that's really what start, one of the reasons why we have a discussion. I want to hear from you that you're getting the Dhamma or I'm, I'm doing something wrong. I'm sorry. And, and to your point, it, everyone's a teacher, regardless of the certificate or yeah. one day or a thousand days. Each yeah. person is teaching from where they, they're at at that moment. Mary often says that. And it, each each moment in the Sangha is important because it gives you an opportunity to understand where everyone's at. And yeah. it's, it's the most important part of this Sangha. Yeah. That's, that's what the Buddha told Ananda. The most important part of your Dhamma practice is your Sangha. That's what David's referring to. It simply can't be done without... A, and look, think of what we do here. How, how, where would any of us be without this well-informed and well-focused Sangha? I can't imagine. And and again, just to touch on this a little bit further, whether you're teaching the Dhamma or not, I would bet each and every one of you has noticed an effect you've had about the people that are closest to you, your family, your loved ones, simply because you're changing your mind. You're gaining a bit of more understanding of yourself. And it can't help but not but, but affect other people around you. Adam? Good morning, John. Good morning. <laughs> um, I, I found myself in Ananda's shoes so many times in the past, people have asked me, so what's this Buddhism thing? I'm like, well, they ask me these questions and I end up being flummoxed and <laughs> not sure what to tell them. And uh, this is such a good kind of instructional text to have handy. It's like, okay, you can go back to the source and, uh, you know, um, don't, don't, uh, you know, um, don't yourself get wrapped up in the same fabrications that people that question you are. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it's it's a uh, it's wonderful. Other thing I want to say again, I said this when after Matt taught a class back last year sometime. The depth of the bench here is extraordinary, yeah, and it's really so uh, it just gives you such strength. To, not only is the strength of teachers here, but the but the sangha as well. Yeah. It's just a really <clears throat> amazing resource and a 
a very, very, um, you know, reassuring foundation. Yeah. So thank you all. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for being such a, a reassuring part of our sangha. Yeah, it's all of us. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, everyone. Um, <clears throat> well, I just have to, I have to echo what Adam said, uh, that uh, the sangha is, uh, the sangha is the heart of what we're doing here. And the sangha is really the teacher. All the teachers are wonderful, but I love when we go around the room, I always learn so much from what everyone says. And <clears throat> I just want to say to David that I listened to your talk and I really thought you did a spectacular job. You were so practical about what you said and how you said it and it really that's the thing about the sangha is that somebody says something that just and just meets you at the right moment yep. and, and it could be that, any of us. and it could be any of us and that's how that's how you that's how you you learn and you progress and you you get to the point where <clears throat> You know, you realize something that you just didn't realize before, and it helps you. But I just want to say the one thing that I learned today that I really was reminded of today that I love about the Dharma is we extricate ourselves. We do it. Yep. Yep. And knowing that we do it is, is to me, is just brilliant on so many levels. So many levels. It, it, it really is the Dhamma, because the Dhamma is, is a form of personal responsibility that is just magnificent. And when, when, when John says, fully mature human being, that's what someone who's awakened is. They're fully mature because they are completely responsible for what they are and what they, and it's just, it's just brilliant. I love it. So that's all I have to say. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you, Becky. Almost bring me to tears. The, uh, the, the, uh, we developed this. The, the personal responsibility we develop is just magnificent. What a, what a magnificent line. Um, and listening to you, Becky, I know I've said this you know, a few times today, and maybe more often um, as I get you know, as I, closer to the cow, um, but I, I think you understand how meaningful my life has become because of all of you. And Becky just said it in such a wonderful way, that I've been able to teach something as magnificent as the Dhamma to people that really want it and take to it and develop it. That, I mean, when I say my life is meaningful, it's because of that. There's not much else going on. You know, I'm not going to tryouts with the Yankees at any point in the future, and using that being silly. My life has, has gotten increasingly simpler and, and also interestingly much more meaningful, and it's because of something like this. Because, And I guess you're feeling the same thing, I would say. I said before that you're having more of an impact with the people around you. You are because you're able to be present with them, whether they realize it or not. That's why you're having an impact. And that's why you're having an impact on me because I have developed through the Dhamma the ability to be present with you. And that's, that's for me. I'm not, you know, I mean, you, we all gain that, the benefit from that. But if you could say there's one selfish act in the world, the most selfish act in the world would be awakening, wouldn't it? Because it's what does the best for me. But paradoxically, it's what's the best for you. If you really are selfish people, we'll take to the dominant and awaken. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Uh, just want to say thank you. I think I'm speechless with um, all the amazing knowledge of the dominant that's here. Mm. Thank you, Kevin. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, this... Uh, I too circled that last line of the sutta 
<laughs> where the, the Buddha simply teaches what stress is and the cessation of stress. And I'm going to be real quick with this. So when I read this sutta, you know, it's a very logical, it's very logical. Mm. It's, it's full of logic, and it actually parses it out to the point where it's almost like, all right, just at all, at all. <laughs> but I understand why. And so it comes back to those three marks, you know, dukkha, anicca, and anatta. And from what I got out of this, this is, again, a very introspective in my own personal experience with the three marks, that these marks have no substance, that it's the reaction to impermanent phenomena. From a self-referential, self-referential uh, viewpoint that lets dukkha arise and ferment. That's for me. And so those are the three marks working in. And so when Buddha said the line, I wish you know I could ask Buddha this. <laughs> and this and is that which is impermanent easeful or stressful? And I would say, well, it's the reaction. It's the reaction. It's the it's that equanimity that if when I rest in equanimity, it's not going to be useful or stressful because I'm content. Yep. There's no reaction to it, and that's that how it how it how the understanding and that resting in equanimity. Um, so once again, I I understood the three marks of my reaction to the impermanent phenomenal world is minimal and reduced. So in other words, I, it's, I still react hmm? in the world. But to your teachings, I've learned to not to be compassionate with myself, don't beat myself up about it, yep. and just take the breath and start again. And to, to what David was saying um, about Anurata, you know, I sense that he had some doubt. Yeah, I and, and, that's, and we all do, right? We all have doubt. Yeah. And just by him going to the Buddha, it verified what he already knew. Yeah. So, um, and uh, one of the last thing I wanted to always say this about impermanence: everything in the universe, including the universe, is impermanent. There's nothing. Yeah has any substance to it. Is then impermanence also impermanent? Well, <laughs> I can't go down that road. Hold on, 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 hold on please, hold on, please. We, we can't get into a side conversation. We're running late. I'm not prepared, so that's all okay, I want to say. Thank you, Tim. Um, we, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to do this, but you each got about a minute, because I, I have a ride, and I promise I'll start, remind me, I'll start in the back next class. But Good morning, Michael. Hi, John. Uh, I agree with what uh, Tim is saying in his perspective on this. Um, when I think of this journey that we're on, this, um, each, each one of these suttas kind of uh, lead, lead us to, uh, believe me, anyhow, to a deeper understanding and sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong. And Julie and I discuss many different things. We come up with an understanding that we both agree on. Um, and when I'm reading this sutta, okay, what I'm getting out of this is, and I'm referring, then I'm going back to the Rahagata sutta, okay, when the Buddha describes there's three types of feelings. There's a feeling of pleasure, a feeling of pain, and a feeling that's neither pleasure or pain. Then you said that whatever feeling arises, they're all stressful. In what connection do you do you say this? From my interpretation of that, then of course we feel pleasure and pain, but then neither pleasure nor pain is also a feeling. Any feeling that arises, right? Yep. So all three are are uh, considered feelings that arise. Yep, all three. It's so all part of, and they arise and they pass away. 
So again, now forwarding to the, to the current sutta, what I'm led to believe is that that recognition of the fact that there's, there's a feeling of pleasure and a feeling of pain is something easily understood. It's that neutrality of neither feeling or, or not feeling. Yeah, that, that ambiguous state is almost always, or always experienced as boredom to it. I mean, that's the label we put on it, and we want to get out of that as quickly as possible because it feels like there's nothing established. Yes, yes and that's where I'm going with this. Thank you, Mark. I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, gotta, I don't want to keep this guy waiting for too long. Um, for noble silence, John. <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, please Thank remind you. me to call on you first next class because when they run late like this, they just do. But I'd like to hear what you have to say. You have a minute or two. No, that's, that's okay. okay. I, I wrote down all these notes and everything like that. If you want, I, I'll type it and I'll send it to you. Well, okay. <laughs> we, or you can so, give me a call. you could read them. All right, please. <laughs> For entertainment. Good morning, Tom. Uh, good morning. Thank you, John. This was, uh, this seems, the sutta seems like a touchstone. Yeah. That, it, that this is what it's all about. And as I'm entering this space, I think that this is the kind of sutta I'd come back to again and again. Yeah. Yeah, we all should. And again, it's part of the study, so we'll hear it often. But what, what this, the, the whole Buddha's Dhamma is about becoming a fully mature human being. What uh, Anuradha did here is maybe take the, the final step towards actually doing that. You know, and David pointed out the subtlety of, of the Dhamma. It's another important aspect of the Sutta, how subtle these levels of fabrication can get. And the concentration required that our Anuradha had to recognize it in himself, recognize that reaction that happened when the sectarians uh, approached him. So, ah, I, I gotta go. Sorry, folks. Um, I can't think of any announcements. We'll finish with Metta as we always do. Um, so again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. <coughs> The Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her, with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one Having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you, John. See you all soon. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.